0: chapter eighteen of the innocents abroad by mark twain this librivox recording is in the public domain all day long we sped through the mountainous country whose peaks were bright with sunshine whose hillsides were dotted with pretty villas sitting in the midst of gardens and shrubbery and whose deep ravines were cool and shady and looked ever so inviting from where we and the birds were winging our flight through the sultry upper air. We had plenty of chilly tunnels wherein to check our perspiration, though. We timed one of them. We were twenty minutes passing through it, going at the rate of thirty to thirty-five miles an hour. Beyond Alessandra we passed the battlefield of Marengo. Toward dusk we drew near Milan and caught glimpses of the city and the blue mountain peaks beyond. But we were not caring for such things. They did not interest us. In the least we were in a fever of impatience. We were dying to see the renowned cathedral. We watched in this direction and that, and all around and everywhere. We needed no one to point it out. We did not wish anyone to point it out we would recognize it even in the desert of the great sahara at last a forest of graceful needles shimmering in the amber sunlight rose slowly above the pygmy house-tops as one sometimes sees in the far horizon a gilded and pinnacled mass of cloud lift itself above the waste of waves at sea the cathedral we knew it in a moment. Half of that night and all the rest of the next day, this architectural autocrat was our sole object of interest. What a wonder it is, so grand, so solemn, so vast, and yet so delicate, so airy, so graceful, a very world of solid weight, and yet it seems, in the soft moonlight, only a fairy delusion of frost-work that might vanish with a breath. How sharply its pinnacled angles and its wilderness of spires were cut against the sky, and how richly their shadows fell upon its snowy roof. It was a vision, a miracle, an anthem sung in stone, a poem wrought in marble howsoever you look at the great cathedral it is noble it is beautiful wherever you stand in milan and within seven miles of milan it is visible and when it is visible no other object can chain your whole attention leave your eyes unfettered by your will but a single instance and they will surely turn to seek it it is the first thing you look for WHEN YOU RISE IN THE MORNING, AND THE LAST YOUR LINGERING GAZE RESTS UPON AT NIGHT. SURELY IT MUST BE THE PRINCELIEST CREATION THAT EVER BRAIN OF MAN CONCEIVED. AT NINE O'CLOCK IN THE MORNING WE WENT AND STOOD BEFORE THIS MARBLE COLOSSUS. THE CENTRAL ONE OF ITS FIVE GREAT DOORS IS BORDERED WITH A bas RELIEF OF BIRDS AND FRUIT, and beasts and insects which have been so ingeniously carved out of the marble that they seem like living creatures and the figures are so numerous and designs so complex that one might study it a week without exhausting its interest on the great steeple surmounting the myriad of spires inside of the spires over the door the windows in nooks and corners, everywhere that a niche or a perch can be found. About the enormous building from summit to base there is a marble statue, and every statue does a study in itself. Raphael, Angelo, Canova, giants like these gave birth to the designs, and their own pupils carved them every face is eloquent with expression and every attitude is full of grace away above on the lofty roof rank on rank of carved and fretted spires spring high in the air and through their rich tracery one sees the sky beyond in their midst the central steeple towers proudly up like the mainmast of some great indiaman among a fleet of coasters We wished to go aloft. The sacristian showed us a marble stairway—of course it was marble, and of the purest and whitest—there was no other stone, no brick, no wood among its building materials—and told us to go up one hundred and eighty-two steps, and stop till he came. It was not necessary to say stop—we should have done that anyhow. We were tired by the time we got there. This was the roof. Here springing from its broad marble flagstones were the long files of spires, looking very tall close at hand, but diminishing in the distance like the pipes of an organ. We could see now that the statue on the top of each was the size of a large man, though they all looked like dolls from the street. We could see, also, that from the inside of each, every one of these hollow spires from sixteen to thirty-one beautiful marble statues looked out upon the world below. From the eaves to the comb of the roof stretched in endless succession great curved marble beams, like the fore-and-aft braces of a steamboat. And along each beam, from end to end, stood up a row of richly carved flowers and fruits, each separate and distinct and kind, and over 15,000 species represented. At a little distance these rows seemed to close together like the ties of a railroad track, and then the mingling together of the buds and blossoms of this marble garden forms a picture that is very charming to the eye. We descended and entered. Within the church long rows of fluted columns, like huge monuments, divided the building into broad aisles, and on the figured pavement fell many a soft blush from the painted windows above. I knew the church was very large, but I could not fully appreciate its great size until I noticed that the men standing far down by the altar looked like boys, and seemed to glide rather than walk. We loitered about gazing aloft at the monster windows all aglow with brilliantly colored scenes in the lives of the Savior and His followers. Some of these pictures are mosaics, and so artistically are there a thousand particles of tinted glass or stone put together, that the work has all the smoothness and the finish of a painting. We counted sixty panes of glass in one window, and each pane was adorned with one of these master achievements of genius and patience. The guide shows us a coffee-colored piece of sculpture, which he said was considered to have come from the hand of Phidias, since it was not possible that any other artist of any epoch could have copied nature with such faultless accuracy. The figure was that of a man without a skin, with every vein, artery, muscle, every fiber and tendon and tissue of the human frame, represented in minute detail. It looked natural, because somehow it looked as if it were in pain. A skinned man would be likely to look that way, unless his attention were occupied with some other matter. It was a hideous thing, and yet there was a fascination about it. I am very sorry I saw it, because I shall always see it now. I shall dream of it sometimes. I shall dream that it is resting its corded arms on the bed's head and looking down on me with its dead eyes. I shall dream that it is stretched between the sheets with me and touching me with its exposed muscles and its stringy, cold legs. It is hard to forget repulsive things. I remember yet how I ran off from school once when I was a boy, and then pretty late at night I concluded to climb into the window of my father's office and sleep on a lounge, because I had a delicacy about going home and getting thrashed. As I lay on the lounge and my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness, I fancied I could see a long, dusky, shapeless thing stretched upon the floor. A cold shiver went through me. I turned my face to the wall that did not answer. I was afraid that that thing would creep over and seize me in the dark. I turned back and stared at it for minutes and minutes. They seemed hours. It appeared to me that the lagging moonlight never, never would get to it. I turned to the wall and counted twenty to pass the feverish time away. I looked the pale square was nearer i turned again and counted fifty it was almost touching it with desperate will i turned again and counted one hundred and faced about all in a tremble a white human hand lay in the moonlight such an awful sinking at the heart such a sudden gasp for breath i felt i cannot tell what i felt When I recovered strength enough, I faced the wall again. But no boy could have remained so with that mysterious hand behind him. I counted again and looked. The most of a naked arm was exposed. I put my hands over my eyes and counted till I could stand it no more. And then the pallid face of a man was there, with the corners of a mouth drawn down and his eyes fixed and glassy in death. I raised to a sitting posture and glowered on that corpse till the light crept down on the bare breast line by line, inch by inch, past the nipple, and then it disclosed a ghastly stab. I went away from there. I did not say that I went away in any sort of a hurry, but I simply went. That is sufficient. I went out the window, and I carried the sash along with me. I did not need the sash, but it was handier to take it than it was to leave it, and so I took it. I was not scared, but I was considerably agitated. When I reached home, they whipped me, but I enjoyed it. It seemed perfectly delightful. The man had been stabbed near the office that afternoon, and they carried him in there to doctor him, but he only lived an hour. I have slept in the same room with him often since then in my dreams. Now we will descend into the crypt under the grand altar of Milan Cathedral and receive an impressive sermon from lips that have been silent and hands that have been gestureless for three hundred years. The priest stopped in a small dungeon and held up his candle. This was the last resting place of a good man a warm-hearted, unselfish man, a man whose whole life was given to securing the poor, encouraging the faint-hearted, visiting the sick, in relieving distress, and whenever and wherever he found it, his heart, his hand, and his purse were always open. With his story in one's mind, we can almost see his benign countenance moving calmly among the haggard faces of Milan in those days when the plague swept the city. Brave were all the other cowards, full of compassion, where pity had been crushed out of all other breasts, by the instinct of self-preservation gone mad with terror, cheering all, praying with all, helping all, with hand and brain and purse, at a time when parents forsook their children. The friend deserted the friend, and the brother turned away from the sister while her pleadings were still wailing in his ears. This was good Saint Charles Borromeo, Bishop of Milan. The people idolized him. Princes lavished uncounted treasures upon him. We stood in his tomb. Near by was the sarcophagus, lighted by the dripping candles. The walls were faced with bas reliefs representing scenes in his life done in massive silver. The priest put on a short white lace garment over his black robe, crossed himself, bowed reverently, and began to turn a windlass slowly. The sarcophagus separated in two parts lengthwise and the lower part sank down and disclosed a coffin of rock crystal as clear as the atmosphere. Within lay the body, robed in costly habiliments, covered with gold embroidery and starred with scintillating gems. The decaying head was black with age. The dry skin was drawn tight to the bones. The eyes were gone. There was a hole in the temple and another in the cheek and the skinny lips were parted as in a ghastly smile. Over this dreadful face, its dust and decay and its mocking grin hung a crown sewn thick with flashing brilliance, and upon the breast lay crosses and croziers of solid gold that were splendid with emeralds and diamonds. How poor and cheap and trivial these gigas seemed in the presence of the solemnity, the grandeur, the awful majesty of death. Think of Milton, Shakespeare, Washington, standing before a reverent world, tricked out in the glass beads, the brass earrings and the tin trumpery of the savages of the plains. Dead Bartholomew, PREACHED HIS PREGNANT SERMON, AND HIS BURDEN WAS, YOU THAT WORSHIP THE VANITIES OF EARTH, YOU THAT LONG FOR WORLDLY HONOR, WORLDLY WEALTH, WORLDLY FAME, BEHOLD THEIR WORTH. TO US IT SEEMED THAT SO GOOD A MAN, SO KIND A HEART, SO SIMPLE A NATURE, DESERVED REST AND PEACE IN A GRAVE SACRED FROM THE INTRUSION OF PRYING EYES, AND BELIEVED THAT HE HIMSELF WOULD HAVE PREFERRED TO HAVE IT SO but peradventure our wisdom was at fault in this regard. As we came out upon the floor of the church again, another priest volunteered to show us the treasures of the church. What more? The furniture of the narrow chamber of death we had just visited weighed six millions of francs in ounces and carats alone. Without a penny thrown into the account for costly workmanship bestowed upon them but we followed into a large room filled with tall wooden presses like wardrobes we threw them open and behold the cargoes of crude bullion of the assay offices of nevada faded out of my memory there were virgins and bishops there above their natural size made of solid silver each worth by weight from eight hundred thousand to two millions of francs, and bearing the gemmed books in their hands worth eighty thousand, there were bas-reliefs that weighed as six hundred pounds, carved in solid silver, crozier's and crosses, and candlesticks six and eight feet high, all of virgin gold and brilliant with precious stones. And besides these were all manners of cups and vases, and such things rich in proportion. It was an Aladdin's palace. The treasures here by simple weight, and without counting workmanship, were valued at fifty millions of francs. If I could get the custody of them for a while, I fear me the market price of silver bishops would advance shortly on account of their scarcity in the Cathedral of Milan." priest showed us two of st paul's fingers and one of st peter's a bone of judas iscariot it was black and also bones of all the other disciples a handkerchief in which the savior had left the impression of his face among the most precious of the relics were a stone from the holy sepulchre part of the crown of thorns they have a whole one at notre dame a fragment of the purple robe worn by the Savior, a nail from the cross, and a picture of the Virgin and Child painted by the veritable hand of St. Luke. This is the second of St. Luke's virgins we have seen. Once a year all these holy relics are carried in procession through the streets of Milan. I like to revel in the driest details of the great cathedral. The building is five hundred feet long by one hundred eighty wide, and the principal steeple in it is in the neighborhood of four hundred feet high. It has seven thousand one hundred forty eight marble statues, and will have upwards of three thousand more when it is finished. In addition, it has one thousand five hundred bas-reliefs, it has one hundred thirty six spires, twenty-one more to be added each spire is surmounted by a statue of six and a half feet high everything about the church is marble and all from the same quarry it was bequeathed to the archbishopric for this purpose centuries ago so nothing but the mere workmanship costs still that is expensive THE BILL FOOTS UP uh, 684 MILLIONS OF francs THUS FAR, CONSIDERABLY OVER A HUNDRED MILLIONS OF DOLLARS, AND IT IS ESTIMATED THAT IT WILL TAKE A HUNDRED AND TWENTY YEARS YET TO FINISH THE CATHEDRAL. IT LOOKS COMPLETE, BUT IS FAR FROM BEING SO. WE SAW A NEW STATUE PUT IN ITS NICHE YESTERDAY, ALONGSIDE ONE OF WHICH HAS BEEN STANDING THESE 400 YEARS, THEY SAID. There are four staircases leading up to the main steeple, each of which cost a hundred thousand dollars, with the four hundred and eight statues which adorn them. Marco Componi was the uh, architect who designed the wonderful structure more than five hundred years ago, and it took him forty-six years to work out the plan and get it ready to hand over to the builders. He is dead now. THE BUILDING WAS BEGUN A LITTLE LESS THAN FIVE HUNDRED YEARS AGO, AND A THIRD GENERATION HENCE IT WILL STILL NOT SEE IT COMPLETED. THE BUILDING LOOKS BEST BY MOONLIGHT, BECAUSE THE OLDER PORTIONS OF IT, BEING STAINED WITH AGE, contrast UNPLEASANTLY WITH THE NEWER AND WIDER PORTIONS. IT SEEMS SOMEWHAT TOO BROAD FOR ITS HEIGHT, BUT MAYBE FAMILIARITY WITH IT MIGHT DISSIPATE THIS IMPRESSION they say the cathedral of milan is second only to saint peter's at rome i cannot understand how it can be second to anything made by human hands we bid it good-bye now possibly for all time how surely in some future day when the memory of it shall have lost its vividness shall we half believe we have seen it in a wonderful dream but never with waking eyes. End of Chapter 18. Recording by B. Scott Holmes. BscottHolmes.com.